Cleveland. I am Dr. I, and I am here with my esteemed colleague, Dr. Joe. What's going on in your world? I see sunshine, and that's a great thing. We need some some sunny days, but no, it's a glorious day here in central Ohio, and so we're glad that everyone tuned in today. There's a lot that's been going on this past week for us to think about and reflect about, and we'll have some guests on as always to help us do that, but around the country, there are signs of some people celebrating the news that perhaps we've reached a milestone in the pandemic. There was an announcement that most of you have heard about the fact that according to the Centers for Disease Control, those of us who have been fully vaccinated, meaning we've received either one dose of the one-dose vaccines or two doses of the two-dose vaccines and waited for the two weeks afterwards, if we're fully vaccinated, we can, according to some experts, remove our masks. I'm not doing that, but some people are pleased about it. And the reason I'm not doing that is because I just suspect those are there are people who have not been vaccinated and are not wearing masks who are still out there inhaling and exhaling air that I just like to not breathe in the middle of a pandemic. So I don't know, Doctor. I I might I might wear my mask for years to come. Well, I think I saw where Kroger said keep your mask on, and I'm gonna keep my mask on because I think there are people out there that say they've been vaccinated and they haven't which brings me to to another point telling the truth (laughs) have you ever heard of that before a truth telling the truth and being honest have you ever heard that before dr joe well there are those of us who have crossed that line again in terms of truth telling as it relates to another um, major event this past week I remember as a child being told, you've got to tell the truth. Don't tell any of those little white lies. That's bad. But evidently, some people didn't get that message when when they were being brought up because there are some people that say that there was not an insurrection at the White House. They said it was a peaceful protest. And... and People were just walking through the White House, just like they were walking through a park. I have a problem with that. Yes, and and actually it was U.S. Capitol on January 6th. What some of us saw as an insurrection, there are others, especially lawmakers in, in high offices who have said that that didn't happen. And in particular, one lawmaker who was ousted from a leadership position for um, basically telling the truth about that and what happened in the election. Don't get it twisted. The truth is a virtue. I am just appalled at that. That's where we are in society now between questioning the truth or a lie. But we're not going to dwell on that today. We're going to dwell on getting information about how we can improve our lives, how we can enrich our lives. And unfortunately, sometimes there's information that's held back from us. Well, today, Dr. Joe and I are going to open the door to a conversation that probably many of us have never had. And that is we need to have an understanding about gun use, the virtues, the warnings, how to use them, and how not to use them. And we have a very distinguished panel coming on today, Dr. Joe. And let me just mention the first guest. He is the assistant vice president and chief of police at the University of Louisville. And he is in charge of all armed forces Uh, activities, parking, fire, emergency management, you name it, he's the one. And he is kind of a Buckeye. He was um, working at Ohio State University uh, from 2013 to 15 when he was in marketing and public relations. However, his degree is in criminal justice and public safety from the Franklin University, Dr. Joe. I'm teasing, we both teach there. 
And um, Gary Lewis is on the line waiting to help us understand the, the good, the bad, and the ugly about gun usage. So welcome, Mr. Lewis. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. That's right. It is good morning over there in Louisville. My, my colleague, Dr. Joe, reminded me that you all are on Central Time. Um, well, actually, parts of the state of Kentucky are Louisville. We're actually Eastern, and we, we have crossed that uh, noon, so I should say good afternoon in my salutation. Oh, okay. Well, we, well we, we get it. I'm from Evansville, so I have to do it all the time, but thank you for being okay. here. Let me start yes. off and say that um, I would like to know what motivated you, and I'm sure our, our listeners would as well, to go into law enforcement as a black man? So I've been in law enforcement now for nearly 30 years. I um, grew up on the west side of Columbus as a a young man. I can remember the days of the substations and um, walking to the substation there at Sullivan and Belvedere. It's been a lot of time, just um, kind of a uh, truly a fly on the wall and spending time with those officers you know back then they had the dare officers and um many of the officers just would stop and talk to us kids they would stop and pass out columbus clipper cards to us um that was my first true um, interaction with law enforcement was from a um, really a, a small child and um, as i got older my uncle joined the columbus police department and then um, became a detective I truly have always idolized him and looked at him as a role model in many ways. And so it was just very natural for me in my experience in growing up and watching my uncle as well. And he's one of my favorite people as well, Daryl Kershaw. He is 100% honest and kind and and all of the good stuff. He is that. Um, So now that you're down in Louisville, um, you're in charge of like the whole campus, aren't you? I am. So, um, you know, I spent 22 years with the Ohio State Highway Patrol. I was stationed all over Ohio. Um, upon my retirement, as you mentioned, I um, spent some time as a civilian at Ohio State, and then I got back into law enforcement, went up north to Cleveland at Cleveland State, and was the police chief there. I've been at the University of Louisville now for Uh, almost three years. It'd be three years in July. And, um, you know, as you can imagine what the city has been undergoing with the social justice component and what's been happening, uh, it's really changed the complexities of law enforcement in the African-American community and that interaction or lack thereof. So it has really been a challenge this past year and a half. So we ask you on as an expert to help us uh, become more knowledgeable about gun laws and policies. And so my, my question here is, what do we need to know about what police can do uh, under um, the act, action of an arrest? What are the main policies that we as civilians need to be aware of for getting arrested? Yeah, so um, great question. I think we kind of have to to look at it in in several layers. So, you know, clearly the first layer is that all citizens have the right to bear arms, and that is in plain view. Um, Obviously, with concealed carry, many individuals are getting their concealed carry permits. States like Ohio and, and here in Kentucky Um, go through a course to be able to do that and to protect oneself. On the next level, from um, the law enforcement perspective, obviously law enforcement are equipped with handguns, um, oftentimes other weapons uh, in case something significant were to occur that they would have that shotgun, in some cases um, the semi-automatic ARs, etc. But I think that more than anything, you know, again, as Ohio's law has changed, interaction from a traffic stop and how that weapon is being stored, where it's being stored at, those all come into play. Um, There are different levels, different tiers from it being on a person, their glove box, et cetera. Um, And, you know, as 
as the laws have changed from when I first got into law enforcement, um, I think that they've been much more relaxed and allowing motorists to be able to transport those weapons. And obviously in your home, you have that right to maintain and, and to protect your property. And that's that Second Amendment that keeps coming up in discussion. Correct. Correct. And, you know, it varies state to state and, and even now city to city as we're seeing some um, ordinances being passed, um, gun violence. I know here in Louisville, we're seeing a significant increase in gun violence. Um, many organizations are trying to assist in getting weapons off the street. For example, I'm a member of Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity Incorporated, and, and our fraternity is doing a number of initiatives across the country in trying to help the African-American community in getting these weapons um, off the streets and doing some initiatives and programs. We're going to try and duplicate something like that here in Louisville. I'll be working with um, uh, potentially some, some partners in trying to aid and get them off, not only get them off the streets, but getting those properly destroyed to try to reduce some of the gun violence. And we've seen that, um, especially with our teenagers. Teen gun violence is at an all-time high here in this community. And I know in Columbus, um, gun violence um, continues to, to, to be um, definitely an issue. Are you saying that the, the, the gun violence that we've been witnessing uh, is coming from guns that are not properly registered? From what we're seeing, yes, that is correct. Many of these are being ill-gotten gained. Um, they're quickly able to get a hold of weapons, and, and yes, they are not going through the, the process that a traditional citizen would go through to obtain a weapon. Um, they're getting them um, illegally. And so when I heard that you can go to a private gun owner and buy a gun with relatively no hassle, is that correct? I think that, that it's very correct in the sense that you can obtain that. Um, you know, oftentimes I think that there's this perception with um, weapons being registered. You know, you hear that often. But if a neighbor decided that they wanted to sell a weapon to another neighbor, they could. And there's nothing that prohibits um, that interaction from taking place. Okay. And what, what is your um, plan to try to stop that? With, your, with the organizations that you're involved with? Well, I think that this, you know, looking at it from, you know, again, I'm responsible for my campus community, although, um, you know, we're situated similar to other urban campuses. We're in the middle of Louisville, seeing that potentially cross over into our campus. So my job is to really protect the, the citizens of, of campus and, and the stakeholders nearby. I'm trying to work with adjacent agencies. I'm doing this program. Um, we've seen some success again with with my fraternity, and I think it's a great idea. Um, and it's the first step. You know, I think one of the things that I learned while I was with the the Ohio State Highway Patrol was that you know you have this mindset that you want to arrest every drunk driver, you want to stop every speeder, and you come to the realization that you can be most effective by engaging and spending quality time one person at a time as opposed to trying to take on too much. And that's what I'm trying to do here in Louisville, really trying to focus on the resources with um, not only just my fraternity, but potentially seeing if we could build this out to the other African-American fraternities and sororities. I think that it would be impactful to really get that buy-in and to, um, to get some of these weapons off the street. It may not mean we'll get all of them, but it will show that we're making some positive efforts and trying to send a message. Um, regarding gun use and gun ownership, can you explain to our audience the um, leeway that a police officer has on search and seizure practices? Well, um, so search and seizure, there's trying to do that, and, and, and this call may be a little challenging, but the, I will say this, that, um, you know, there's different search and seizures that apply from, let's say, a motor vehicle stop to an individual stop on the street to engaging and in coming into someone's home. 
Um, at the end of the day, most cases, a search warrant would be needed for search and seizure. And to be able to, to do exactly that, to search and to seize, um, as we know, in traffic stops, and I think this is something that over time is going to change, that it used to be that a drug detection canine, if one alerted around a vehicle, then that enabled probable cause to then search. And if something um, uh, illegal narcotics were found, then they could be seized. But as far as a person, you know, there are things from pat-downs to Miranda, um, and then being able to search a person, a lot of factors come into that. And, and oftentimes it's almost better even for an attorney to kind of break it down a little more so than from my perspective. But we always have to make sure that we're doing the right thing in law enforcement. And, I, and that's unfortunate, but what we're seeing across the country in, in this profession is that a lot of officers, a lot of agencies are not doing that and having a standard and then holding personnel accountable for that. And, and I'm, I'm hopeful that we see the pendulum come back to seeing all the great work that men and women across the country are doing in this space. Um, with the no-knock warrant, which I guess is the situation that happened down in Louisville with uh, mm -hmm. Brianna, Tell us what the parameters are on that. Well, one of the things, and, and I'll, I, I want to first start by saying, um, I don't want to speak specifically on that incident, but I will just talk about, to your question, kind of the process yes. in that. Um, and one of the things that's happened here in Kentucky, um, they've eliminated that. So they've eliminated the ability to do those no-knock as a result of. But to answer your question succinctly, Oftentimes what happens is law enforcement will develop a significant number of indicators that they need to present to a judge that gives them the ability that they can articulate why it's so important for them to do a no-knock. And once they've obtained that, then they can do that. And there are a number of reasons that, that could be potentially factored into, um, into that. But as we have learned, um, they're not always the most effective and attempting to articulate the steps following that have become more challenging for law enforcement. So I think that many in my position uh, of leadership are really critically reevaluating the use and the need. And, and as I shared here in Kentucky, it's no longer something. Um, it, the, the probability now of obtaining a no-knock search warrant in the state of Kentucky is very, very low um, because of all the factors that would go into that. Um, I, you know, in Ohio, I don't believe that no-knocks are executed. Um, you know, it's been some time since I've, I've been back in my, my home Buckeye State, but um, so I don't want to speak specifically to that, but I know here that law has changed. Uh, Gary, we have a break coming up, but I do want to ask you a question that um, basically is the background for our concern about the, the gun violence that seems to be growing. Um, what kind of training um, is offered to law enforcement to try to avoid having to use the gun? If there's a, a, a crowd that's unruly or something like that, are you taught to try to mediate before shooting? Absolutely, so you know, across the country, there was a, a model that they called the use of force continuum. And in the use of force continuum, the first thing that you learn is that just your visual presence then is kind of the, that entry, that gateway. And from there, you really want to engage verbally, um, provide some guidance, some direction, attempt to um, de-escalate a situation. I can share with you many, many times in my role, I have found it to be so much more effective to just talk to people. Um, many a days when I would stop individuals, you know, if I saw um, a young man that may be with his, his family, um, I would simply say, sir, I don't want to put you in a position that would potentially disrespect you in front of your children, your wife. Um, I'm stopping you for a, a traffic violation. Is it okay if you come back to my cruiser and, and we talk a little bit about this? And that in itself gives a sense of calm. It would enable that father, that husband, 
to still feel empowered, to not feel as though um, this figure standing there beside their vehicle was minimizing the impact of what he means in that household. And I took that very seriously. And I think that that level of communication and just sharing what it is, being in a calm demeanor, that de-escalation has, has really been at the backbone of my career and I found it to be extremely successful. Um, we need to take just a real quick break, Gary, and we're gonna come back and talk with you just a little bit more about your experience as a law enforcement officer. So audience, please stay with us. We will be, we will be right back on the window. We are back with Mr. Gary Lewis on the window. Gary, you know, uh, we are getting into the summer festival time and people are out in the streets now because of the relaxed conditions with the virus. And so there's gonna be summer festivals and people cruising and having a good time in the park, um, which brings me to, I guess our final question is, um, if, if, what, what has brought about all of this external um, gun violence out in the streets and finding bodies in the park and is it going to get worse because of the summer or, or how can how can we process what we're getting ready to, to experience so my experience has been in years past unfortunately violence incidents such as what you just mentioned tend to increase during the summer months as opposed to not. And it's unfortunate, and I think that we have to, on the law enforcement side, partner more with community activists. I think that we need more than just clergy. I think it has to be a number of outlets to look at these young people having something to do other than just standing around in the park. I think that those opportunities, you know, I grew up, um, as I shared on the hilltop, we could go to Glenwood Park and there were a number of activities and events from swimming to arts and crafts to so much that, that we got involved in as kids, um, sports. I mean, I, I don't know if we have in, really invested in providing those opportunities. I, I remember in the summer we would go um, uh, my brothers and I, we, as a shared go to Glenwood, you know, they would provide us with breakfast and lunch, and um, we could have that exchange a, uh, with law enforcement and other careers, and to just learn more about what others in our community were doing, and to be that inspiration and, and some examples. So to, to come back to your original question, do I unfortunately fear that that could happen? Yes. Do I think that young people are involved in much, much more, not only involved, but victims of um, today than they were 10 years ago? Absolutely. Do I know why? I don't. Um, and that's something I think that many of us have to try and figure out why, look at what the cause and effect is. As I mentioned, is it not the lack of community service? Is it just a, a, a shift in, in um, the way that young people are thinking. I mean, I think that, you know, there may be some research that might indicate it might be, you know, at one time of video games or, or other types of stimuli. But at the end of the day, lives are being lost. Having to do death notifications to parents following senseless crime like this is very disappointing. Okay. So this is Dr. Joe again. Thank you for joining us today. I've been listening to the conversation and thank you for all the knowledge you're sharing with us and our listeners, but I don't feel safe. That's the bottom line for me. I need to know what to do to feel safe. And I have a few very specific questions for you. In just a few minutes, we'll have a guest on who believes that the way to feel safe is to, um, to strap up, to pack as Dr. I and I, and I had to learn are common terms for people who carry guns regularly, everyday citizens. But a few questions for you. So um, just before the pandemic, um, in my home, we had a broad daylight attempt at a home invasion. And fortunately, we happened to be home. 
fortunately we were able to take care of the situation very nicely um, but without the use of a gun it took the police about 20 minutes to arrive when they got there they couldn't have been more courteous and concerned but there was a problem with the dispatching as we heard and there was a there was a shift change going on so so we were left to figure out how to deal with this home invasion while it was happening which we did but later we were told by gun advocates who thought that was their dream come true to have someone breaking in their home if they were standing there armed i was told that we would have had some limitations as to what we could have done as it related to using guns in our home to protect ourselves in a clear situation like that is that true I'm sorry, was that, is that still a question for me? Yes, or is that you know, that's, that okay. is still a question for you. Given that we were okay. in the midst of an attempted home invasion for which we did not have to use a gun, but if we had used a gun, would there have been limitations as to what we could have done to stop that home invasion? Well, with the, the recent Stand Your Ground and the ability to protect property, would you have been justified? You know, I can give carte blanche response and say yes, the reality is, is that there may be a prosecutor in a different community that may say different. I think it's, at the end of the day, if you are faced in that type of situation in your home, you have to act and do what you feel is best in the moment. And that's how I would operate in my own home and, and would share with you or anyone else. We also, in part as an aftermath to that, we, we have someone in our home who went through a conceal and carry class. They're 25 years old. And after the class, we were told by others to please consider whether we wanted to move forward in getting him his conceal and carry permit because if the information we were given is correct, because once he did that, if he got pulled over even for a minor traffic stop, they would be able to pull up his record, see that he had a conceal and carry permit, and perhaps worst case scenario that could lead to situations whether he was carrying right then or not that could lead to situations which unfortunately we've heard about where someone and in this case a black male in particular might be treated somewhat differently by a law enforcement officer approaching the car if they knew he had a conceal and carry permit is that a concern for people who do choose to get a permit you know I think that you have to focus on the protection piece, protecting self. And I would not say that that should deter anyone from getting a concealed carry permit. Um, it's, and I, I'll be very transparent, you know, it's been um, some time since I have individually engaged in a traffic stop. But on those times that I did, and immediately dispatch would come back and, and mention that they have a concealed carry weapon, that's for officer safety purposes that they have that permit oftentimes as soon as i got up to the window the driver would say you know officer i've got a permit i'd say i'm okay on it and i would ask where's the weapon they'd say it's either you know on my hip or it's in uh, the glove or the trunk and once we establish that then i could go ahead and continue the nature of the stop for whatever that was speeding whatever the case may be so I think, again, it goes back to an earlier comment about just communication and understanding both sides. I've been very blessed and very fortunate that just knowing how to talk to people and then de developing a kind of a, a playing field in that communication really addresses it. And I think that although many of us across the country receive the same type of training it doesn't mean that we're all applying it equally and that's the disconnect is that yes we're all getting um, cultural sensitivity de-escalation bias awareness training but at the end of the day if it's not being applied evenly that's why we continue to see what we're seeing well, thank you. We're very blessed, too, to have had you on the show today to share your expertise and also for the work you're doing in the community to try to get us to that ideal stage where um, law enforcement is enforcing the law, but doing so in a way that makes all of us feel safer. So thank you. Uh, we are going to bring on our next guest now. You're free to stay with us. Our next guest is Ben Ward. I referred to him earlier in the program as being someone who believes, from my understanding, that the way perhaps to keep keep yourself a bit more safe is to um, 
is to sometimes take matters into your own hands as it relates to having guns within your home. So, Ben Ward, thank you for joining us as well today on The Window. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. If my understanding is correct, you... um, you have um, a degree in information and computer technology, which doesn't seem to be directly related to gun ownership. You're also an entrepreneur, as I understand it, kind of an early mm-hmm. retirement career with your wife owning a clothing store. But in addition to that, you own, if I'm understanding correctly, again, about 20 firearms and you're president of the Blackout Gun Club and you're a certified firearms instructor. Talk to us about that. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah, so I am the president of Blackout Gun Club here in Columbus, Ohio. And um, we we basically are a community-based organization um, that we focus on education and training and um, just information as far as um, from a African-American perspective and what you need to know as a a gun owner um, as far as your rights and what licensing you need to have, even to the point where we suggest and train on specific specific firearms and kind of uh, what may be best for and what may be the best option for you, you and your situation. Okay, so give us a mini crash course. What if Dr. I and I said, gee, we're considering getting guns, but we don't know what we don't know, and we would like to be the type of informed, reliable gun owners you're talking about. What would you tell us for starters? Yeah, the first thing I always want to determine is what exactly is your are your usage for the gun. So what is the purpose? Do I want something for home protection? Do I want something that I want to carry with me on a daily basis? Because depending on your answer, those can be two totally different types of platforms or, or firearms that you would choose. Um, once we do that, once we determine, you know, what's your, what your goal is with that particular uh, firearm, then we would determine, you know, size, caliber, stuff like that, um, how you would carry it, you know, um, and all that thing, all that comes into play when we're trying to determine what would be the best option for you. So is it a matter of wanting to have a gun or needing to have a gun? Do you think people need to have guns in this day and age? Um, I think it's dangerous out here, personally. I, I think that the streets are probably more dangerous now than I can recall growing up. Um, and, you know, I've lived in Columbus. I didn't grow up in Columbus my whole life, um, but the majority of my life I've been here for over 30 years. And to me, it, it seems pretty dangerous out here as opposed to how it's been in the past. So me personally, I'd rather have it and not need it than need it and not have it. So will more of us having guns make life less dangerous or more dangerous? So I, th- I think it depends on the person. Um, I, one, of, one of the things that we are definitely definitely an advocate of is if you're going to purchase a firearm, there is no way that I would say to buy a firearm and you've never handled one, you've never been instructed on one, you have no clue what you're doing with it, okay? Um, you, if you purchase a firearm, you definitely need to get some sort of training from a certified instructor or professional and make sure that you're comfortable with the workings of that firearm, um, how you're going to use it, what you do to use it, um, and what type of situations it would be best for. Just purchasing a gun, I I tell people all the time, you buying a firearm and taking it home with you does not make you safer. As a matter of fact, it probably makes you less safe than you were prior to buying that because now I have a a potentially deadly weapon in my house that I may not know how to use. So how do we get the training that we need if we choose to own a gun? So there's, I mean, you can actually find it online. Um, There are organizations just like ours throughout Columbus and Central Ohio that provide training for people that are looking for um, that extra, to go that extra step so that they really know what they're dealing with and how best to handle that firearm. We, in particular, we do trainings, different types of trainings every month. So we do everything from handgun training, shotgun, and rifle training, and then we do it in different formats as well. So we have stuff that's set up for lady, ladies only, couples only. Um, you can be singles. Um, we do all different types of, of formats with our training. Um, some of the stuff we do is even online. So we do Zoom call where you may not be at a range, but we will be walking you through different aspects of the gun and you know what, how, that, how those different things work. We actually did that as part of the class last night. So how would we get information on your specific business? 
Um, so the easiest way to get in touch with us is just go to our website, which is blackoutgunclub.com. One word, and blackoutgunclub.com? Yeah, blackoutgunclub.com. And then on that on that site, there's actually a link for trainings, and the trainings are listed on there. And we update them every month. So right now, our May trainings are on there. We have a couple more things coming up this month, and then uh, we will be listing the June trainings probably as early as next week so folks can start to register. Is your training expensive? Um, no. So typically what we do is we uh, we usually keep our price set at um, – most of our classes are $50 for a two-hour session, okay? So that's a group session. Could be up to about eight students in the class, um, especially if we're at the outdoor range. Um, so it could be about eight students at the class. And, you know, typically if you go to a range, a local range here in Columbus, and you pay hourly, and if I stay there for two hours, I'm probably going to spend anywhere from 40 to $50 at that range, just shooting by myself, not getting proper instruction or any of that stuff. So, you know, we, we like to keep our costs down for uh, the participants so they can come and spend pretty much that same amount of money but get that additional instruction that I think is so important, um, especially for new gun owners. Ben, I have a question before we take a quick break. This is Dr. I. What comes sure. first, the gun or the license? Um, so, you know, I think it depends on the person. Um, I know of people who have had the firearm first and then they've actually gotten the, um, licensing later. So these may have been people who bought the firearm strictly for home protection, never took it outside the house, never something they carried on their person. And they had the gun, you know, the whole time until they got the CCW license. And then they can, you know, they have some extended privileges where you can carry it on your person outside your home, all that loaded, all that good stuff. Um, so some people do it that way. Other folks will, and I train all our people who go through the CCW class and really get the information and get a good idea of kind of what type of firearm they're looking for. But once they get their certification from the class, get their license from the sheriff department, then they actually go out and buy the firearm. And I know this because a lot of times they'll text me or call me when they're at the store and say, hey, I'm looking at this gun. You think this is a good gun for me? So, you know, I, I've seen it happen both ways. So the license is needed to carry the gun outside the home. But if I have a gun in my home, is there a license needed for that? Uh, inside the home, there is not. Um, so we, prior to the Stand Your Ground law, Ohio was basically a castle doctrine state, which basically means there was a lower threshold um, that had to be met to be able to use deadly force to defend your home. Um, so in my home, I didn't have to retreat. I didn't have to have a special license or anything like that to defend myself in my house. We need to know a lot more about that. So we'll talk to you about it in more detail as soon as we come back from a break. We're back on the window and we are talking about guns. So just before we went away for a break, Ben Ward, who's the president of Blackout Gun Club and a certified firearms instructor, was beginning to talk to us about gun usage in your home, stand your ground law, domicile rule. What's all that about? Please break that down for us. Um, so the, I, I, I'm assuming you're asking about the stand your ground law? Correct. Okay, so basically for stand your ground, um, prior to the stand your ground law in Ohio, there were three stipulations, um, probably technically four, but three stipulations that had to be met in order for you to be authorized to use deadly force in Ohio. Um, one of them was you had to be the innocent party, meaning I didn't instigate or, or start the situation, and also that I was somewhere that I was legally allowed to be. Um, the second one was that I had a, rear, a real fear of um, being killed or at least um, extremely injured in this situation. And then third, um, I had to, I had to try and remove myself from the situation. That's the retreat part. I had to try and remove myself from the situation, if at all possible, prior to me um, using deadly force. So when that was prior to stand your ground. So when stand your ground started in April, four for six or whatever date that that actually began, the change was the last piece, that last option or um, component where you had to remove yourself or try at least try to remove yourself from the situation prior to using daily force has been removed from the table um, so now there's just those two stipulations that have to be met and it's basically it's essentially equivalent to what the castle doctrine was in the home for a Ohio an Ohio resident prior to stand your ground 
we now have kind of like that same concept, that, that same stipulation for outside the home now. So now if I'm outside of my home and, I, I again, I'm not, the, I'm not the person who started or instigated the situation, I'm somewhere I'm legally allowed to be, and I have a, rear, a real fear of um, maybe being subjected to great bodily harm or possibly even killed, then if I so choose, I, I may be able to use, you know, be, and be allowed to use deadly force in that situation. And so for some of us, when we think about stand your ground, we've heard about it the most as it relates to situations like Trayvon Martin in Florida and apparently a dispute over what it takes to, to successfully argue that you really were in fear for your life. What do you think about that? How do we prevent those types of situations? Um, I, you know, I would say personally, so for me, I, I am a person who I carry my firearm on a daily basis. Um, but having said that, I'm, I'm never trying to use it. Okay. So I'm always looking for an opportunity to not use this weapon okay, or this firearm. So that means that I need to take extra steps, meaning I need to be better at being situationally aware of what's taking place. So I don't find myself in a situation where I'm, I have no choice but to use a firearm. I need to be better at um, kind of de-escalation techniques. So I need to be better at not getting into arguments and going tit for tat with people and letting stuff escalate to a situation where I am forced to use, almost forced to use in this case, my, my firearm. Okay, So um, I, I think probably somebody could probably find a reason if they wanted to bad enough. Um, but again, I'm the type of person that I'm not looking to use this. This is like last resort scenario where I really have no choice. And if I don't do it, if I don't use deadly force or use this weapon, um, this firearm rather, then um, I could myself be killed. But again, if I'm doing the things I should be doing as a responsible gun owner in advance of this situation even developing, hopefully I never even find myself in a situation where I have to use deadly force. Ben, what are your thoughts on why there is then so much gun violence in our society? Uh, you know, I think that's a real complicated question. I think there are a lot of different reasons, and those reasons probably vary according to the person who's committing that, that mass murder or whatever. Um, sometimes I think we do a bad job of treating the underlying conditions in this country. Okay, So what happens is something that normally is a tool that people can use for only self-defense situations becomes an offensive tool because they just don't really have any other outlet. A lot of times, um, I, and I know the hindsight is twenty twenty, but it seems like our society, we need to do a better job of addressing social issues and ills and things like that, okay? So for instance, when I was younger, when I didn't have as much to lose and wasn't as established and as accomplished and didn't have a college degree and a wife and kids, all those things, I noticed that I was probably more likely to act out in anger or violence in those type situations because I just, you know, I didn't really have anything to live for from my perspective. But when I got older and had more responsibilities and was able to really have some resources and some opportunities available to me, then I kind of changed as far as how I react to situations. I learned I had to do a better job of managing my problems. We do a good job in this country of, of like the hammer and nail technique, okay? the hammer and nail approach is what I call it where we will call the police and that's kind of the hammer and we call them on homeless people and, and the mentally challenged and those that are having you know financial problems or whatever um, or maybe just having some sort of temporary breakdown in our life and then we we use that hammer and we beat on them with that hammer when sometimes we we don't need that hammer we need social workers we need people uh, we need some sort of assistance programs or sometimes they just need somebody to listen to okay so it's like we we do a good job of we don't do a good job, rather, of treating those underlying conditions. We don't address that poverty, that unequal education, and lack of resources and opportunities, and give the people something to live for rather than um, them turning violent and, you know, whatever happens with that. Ben, this is Dr. I. Um, talk to me about guns and domestic violence. It seems that I just, I think I heard you say that you can buy a gun and keep it in your home and there's no problem with that. But what happens, how, how, do you dis, how do you determine whether someone is mentally or emotionally fit to own a gun? It seems like that's not a screening that happens. 
Yeah, I, you know what? I, so here's, here's my take on just kind of our restrictions and our gun legislation in this country. Um, I will be totally transparent. I am not a person who says there should be zero gun control, okay? What happens is, and being in this gun culture, I see people and I talk to people, I know people, who are very much against any type of gun control whatsoever, regardless what it is, okay? I'm not that person because I wholeheartedly agree. There are some people who probably have no business owning a firearm, and that can be because of mental issues or, or, or past behaviors or whatever. There are definitely probably a segment of, a, a segment of the population who should not have access to firearms, okay? So I definitely agree with that. What typically happens in this country, though, is that the people that really understand and have knowledge of firearms and understand what makes them dangerous and all that type of stuff are the exact ones who don't want any type of gun legislation at all, and they don't want any infringement infringement on their Second Amendment rights, and then, therefore, they won't agree to any gun legislation. The folks who want to do all the gun legislation are usually those who have very little knowledge of firearms. So a lot of times the stuff they're saying literally makes no sense to people like me who when we're looking at it and we're like, that's not even how it works. They call, you know, they, it's, the terminology is wrong. They don't understand how firearms work. And then those are the people who are proposing the legislation to regulate something that they really don't have an understanding of. Kind of reminds me of how men try to pass laws to regulate female, you know, women's bodies and stuff. Um, so, you know, having, having that firearm in your home and having access to it can definitely be a problem according to the person. But if we can do a better job of maybe um, enhancing some of these background checks for specific people in, in certain situations, then maybe we can do a better job at keeping them out of the hands of folks who have no business doing it. Let me give you an example. I heard, I heard and I followed up and read a little bit about it, that in Canada, so Canada has a different background system, gun legislation check thing going on than we do. They do a lot more extensive background check on the person who is trying to purchase a firearm and they will go and look at mental health type scenario situations for that that person more so than we do here in this country okay so i think what we're looking for and and somebody can correct me if i'm wrong but i think when they do the background checks when they do the nicks background check here in the united states they're basically looking for diagnosed mental conditions stuff like that okay that may not be the case because maybe I've never been diagnosed because I didn't go to the to a doctor or psychiatrist, psychologist to get that diagnosis. Okay, so that may never come up in a background check. In Canada, they spend more time talking to the individuals that know that person, so the process is longer in Canada. You know, it's not just the um, the five day wait or whatever the wait is here. Sometimes you get a wait when you purchase a firearm, where they're doing it, that background check. The wait in Canada is going to be longer, but I'm okay with that if it causes somebody who should not own a firearm or prevents them from owning one when they probably should not have one. So is it safe to say, in your opinion, that you can be pro-Second Amendment and still pro-responsible gun ownership and use? Oh, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm pro-Second Amendment, but I'm also pro-life. I mean, I'm pro-human. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm for humanity. I don't. There's stuff that happens with firearms in this country that makes no sense. So... Yeah, I'm definitely. I want to be able to exercise my Second Amendment right, and I want to be able to defend myself and my family if, heaven forbid, I ever have to. But at the same time, you know, and, and, and on top of all that, I'm black. I'm African American. I cannot. There's no way possible for me to separate myself from the trauma and the just the, the, just the carnage that firearms have caused in the black community. I mean, I, there's no way possible for me to do that. So I'm not naive to, you know, that scenario, that situation. I, I totally understand it. I think there needs to be a better job. There, this country needs to do a better job of coming up with some real, legit regulations that would help keep firearms out of the hands of people who mentally should not have them or criminally should not have them but still can allow those of us like myself who who have not been disqualified for you know mental or or um, legal reasons. Gary, this is Dr. I. Why why don't we know more about this topic? Who's supposed to tell us about gun ownership and policies and and I mean, is this something that should be in the school systems? 
I'm sorry. Was you asking? Were you asking me that question? Yes. Yes. Um, you know, so I am very much a proponent of educating your children on firearms at an earlier age if they're ready. Okay. So I have I have three kids. Um, my oldest is thirty. She's not really into into firearms, but she does from time to time mention it and wants to go to range with dad. Okay. I have a 23, about to be 24-year-old. He's very much into him. He goes to the range with me often, okay? And so we go, father and son, and we'll go to the range, and when I see him doing stuff that I know is not correct or whatever, I correct him, and I tell him about it and make sure he understands it, okay? Then I also have an 11-year-old who also um, shoots firearms from time to time, smaller caliber guns. He'll shoot 22, a little 22 rifle. Um, he also shoots BB guns, but he understands what this gun is and what it can do if you're careless with it and just the responsibility that comes with being a gun owner or even just using a gun period he understands that even at a young age so i'm definitely a um like i said a proponent of making sure that we educate our children on what these devices are how they can be um, both positive and negative are you a member of the nra i am not a member of the nra no would you care to comment on why not? <laughs> <laughs> we could so, always go to break now. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I am a member of um, of USCCA, which is an organization that is the organization I'm, when the organization I'm certified to train through. Um, also, an organization that covers my um, my um, carry concealed insurance. Okay, so I do have insurance in case I ever have to again ever be able to use use um, a, a firearm to defend myself. But um, back to the NRA, I am not a member of the NRA because I I just can't really get on board with some of their policies. Um, and really, really what the, the main thing for me was their silence after the Fidel Castro situation um, a few years back when he was a legal gun owner, and I believe he was, you know, had his license and was a NRA member and was killed in an interaction with a police officer. Um, and they never said anything about it, never stood up for him. And so at that point, I, I, you know, pretty much was like, yeah, there's no way I could join an organization like that. And thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. Just so you and our audience will know, June 4th is National Gun Violence Awareness Day. And so that week we've invited a group called Mothers Demand Action on to talk about gun violence from the perspective of the neighborhood groups, even here in central Ohio, who are taking steps to try to minimize the type of violence you talked about we should try to avoid, avoid as responsible yep. gun owners. Please tell us as we close again your website. Uh, it is blackoutgunclub.com. Thank you. So for those of you who have decided today that maybe you want to explore gun ownership, the pros and cons, we invite you to go to that website. We thank our guests. We thank our audience for first just being responsible citizens and also for listening to us this week on The Window. Have a safe week, everyone. Enjoy the sun. See you next week. Thank you.